Good afternoon. Well, welcome to another Banner Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. So now, if you will silence your cell phones if you have them, it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. E. Lee Shepard holds degrees from Newark State College and the University of Virginia. He's been on the VHS staff since 1974 and currently serves as our Vice President for Collections and the Sally and William B. Tallheimer III Senior Archivist. Lee's accomplishments at the VHS and farther afield are legion. Here at the Society, he has helped cement our reputation as one of the premier archival research facilities in the nation. He's overseen the creation of our Reynolds Business History Center, and he plays a key part in ensuring that our entire collection is accessible and relevant in today's digital age. Lee's published numerous articles, served on a variety of professional organizations, and has truly come to be recognized by his peers as a dean in the archival field. More importantly to him, probably, he is the devoted husband of Linda and proud dad to Kelly and Josh, and he plays a pretty mean guitar. He is, in short, an all-around stellar guy. In fact, about the only flaw I can detect in Lee's character at all is his rather baffling allegiance to a certain pro football team that wears a star on the side of its helmet. Well, I guess nobody's perfect. So uh, anyhow, before Iceland strikes again, please join me in a warm welcome to one of our own, Lee Shepard, who will speak to us on Hidden Treasures, a short history of the Mary Custis Lee Trunks. Thank you, Paul, I think, for that... Notice of my allegiance to the Dallas Cowboys. Some of us are <clears throat> strong in our allegiance to many different teams. Some successful and some not so. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I must confess to you that uh, it's a little intimidating to stand up at this podium when you've had a long time to plan for what you want to say. I think it's even a little more so when you're pinch-hitting for someone as, as popular and admired as Jeremy Black. But I have to say, over the last two days since I've learned that I would have this opportunity, <laughs> um, my colleagues have been very supportive, or at least I guess you could call it supportive. A number of them suggested that if I was worried about how people would react to the substitution, that maybe the substitution might not be as noticeable if I tried to give my talk with an English accent. (laughs) I'm not certain how well that would work, so I shan't give it a go. But actually, the story of Mary Custis Lee and her trunks, I think, is sufficiently compelling that you hardly need to resort to gimmicks in its retelling. And truth be told, I've given versions of this talk across the Commonwealth in a number of venues over the uh, past three or four years, but never here at the VHS. So it's really nice to be able to, to bring Mary Custis Lee home and to, uh, to have the chance to share her story here at Battle Abbey. Last weekend, I uh, participated with some of my colleagues in a history conference called the Virginia Forum. It was held at, the, uh, at uh, Christopher Newport University. And I was on a panel with uh, two other archivists that was called Good Stories Hidden in the Archives. And we talked about things in our collections that were not readily apparent, were not 
highly visible, but were wonderful content. And, and the difficulties we archivists have in trying to get information out to people about the, the depth and richness of the collections that we work with. The term hidden collections is, is a term now that's being used and has been used for the last decade or so pretty regularly in the archival profession to talk about these collections and the reasons why they might be hidden from view. Uh, in one sense, they might be hidden because they are as a, yet unprocessed. We haven't had the chance, the opportunity, the resources yet to process collections that are in our holdings. Most repositories suffer from that situation. They might have been minimally cataloged. Uh, the time or the standards for, for processing or the resources available would dictate limits on the detail that we could provide for these collections. Or they might have been processed a long time ago when the emphasis on detailing the information in the collection was on certain kinds of subjects and to the detriment of others. But there was one other key factor that's involved in hiddenness as far as collections are concerned, and that's, and that's the fact that some of them are not yet in repositories. Some of them are not even yet identified where they're located within family homes or businesses. We're often inclined as archivists to say to each other when some wonderful new acquisition comes in the door, it's amazing to us what's still out there. So... If any collection in my recent memory epitomizes such a hidden treasure, which fortunately now is brought to light, it's the Mary Custis Lee papers. So who was Mary Custis Lee, and why would we care about the papers that were hidden in her trunks? Well, probably most of you know she was born in 1835, the second child and eldest daughter of Robert E. Lee and Marianna Randolph Custis of Arlington House. She was a remarkable person in her own right, intelligent, educated, independent, indomitable. The older she grew, the more formidable, it appears, she became. She clearly felt responsibilities because of who she was and because of who her father and mother were and her grandparents. She, of all the children born to General and Mrs. Lee, was probably the most aware of her roots, the most fascinated by them, proudest of them, motivated by them. And in a way, she became the keeper of the family records the family archivist. We know her siblings sent her things later in life, and she, and she carefully maintained things she found interesting or that reminded her of important events in her family's history or her own life. She became a world traveler in the years after her parents' deaths in the early 1870s, and she spent much time abroad, or at least away from Virginia, for a better part of 40 years. She didn't mind using her status as General Lee's daughter, but she never overused it. She made friends. She was faithful to them. She showed a caring side along with the formidable one. It, and it was actually her own personal history as a world traveler that led to the rediscovery of her trunks and their contents. So that's where we should begin this, this really fascinating story. My friend uh, Robert E. L. DeButts, Jr., who is a d direct descendant of Robert E. Lee and corporate attorney in New York, is also a scholar in his own right, studying the role of the Lees in American history. This is he was doing in 2002, and he kept bumping up against Mary Custis and her travels. How, he wondered, did she finance all of that coming out of the post-Civil War South? Financial ruin had fallen on so many, great and small, across the region. So he contacted an old schoolmate from Episcopal High, 
who's now a VP of Burke and Herbert Bank, the Lee's family bank, still operating in Alexandria. <coughs> Did they have any records of Mary Custis Lee's finances, and would they share? The answer to both questions was yes. And then his old schoolmate, Hunt Burke, posed a question. Are you also interested in her trunks? To which Rob replied, what trunks? He was on a plane the next day. Down in the silver vault at Burke and Herbert Bank, they had been kept safe and sound since 1917. I told Hunt it was a a great advertisement for bank security. (laughs) Rob surmised that the family had probably checked them out in 1918, the year of Mary Custis Lee's death, looking for the fabled Custis family silver. But not finding that and finding old papers, they probably said, well, we'll be back for this next week, and just never came back. So now, three generations later, that old paper had become priceless. Rob knew what he was looking at, and he knew he had to get it someplace safe. So acting as agent for Mary Custis Lee's heirs, and she had no children, so those heirs were descendants of her two brothers who did have children. Acting on their behalf, he brought the trunks to the VHS, and he stayed here himself for a full week, going through the contents in our library reading room. He was the first person, apparently, to do so since Mary had last left the trunks at Burke and Herbert in 1917. At last, uh, duty called him home, and he left the trunks in the care of the VHS to be preserved and inventoried. Now, not wanting to overburden any of my staff members, I unselfishly assigned the duty to me. (laughs) The trunks were tightly packed, eventually yielding over 6,500 items, ranging from family letters and journals to military records and legal documents to tickets and invitations and trinkets collected from all corners of the world. Combined, they tell us much about the woman who collected them, but even more about the family members who generated them, persons whose lives were collectively set against some of the most momentous events and significant times in the history of this commonwealth and this nation. Out of those thousands of pieces of evidence of past lives and events, I want to share with you today just a few items that I think will help you understand why this hidden treasure of documentary heritage has gotten us so worked up at the VHS, and why we're so grateful to Rob DeButts, Robert E. Lee IV, Mary Lee Bowman, Ann Carter Zimmer, other Lee family members, as well as a host of generous financial donors who have helped to secure this collection here within the walls of the Virginia Historical Society. And the way I'd like to do it is by letting the people involved tell you bits and pieces of their own stories in their own words from the documents and related materials we've found in the Mary Custis Lee trunks. The collection dates from the last decade of the 17th century through 1917, and its earliest contents focus on Mary's mother's side of the family, the Custises. Now, the first, John Cust- the first John Custis in Virginia, the first Custis in Virginia, was John Custis II. So the first John Custis in Virginia was John Custis II, who was the son of a royalist who had fled from England during the English Civil War and uh, settled in Rotterdam, where he became a tavern keeper and eventually a very prosperous merchant. With uh, land that John Custis II had acquired through his yardly family connections, he emigrated to Virginia. And he brought to Virginia a very special skill that served him well. He could speak Dutch. 
And at the time, the second half of the 17th century, Dutch traders were plying the waters of the Chesapeake Bay in great numbers. Someone with the skill to translate for them, to create partnerships with them, was very well placed. And very quickly, John Custis became quite a wealthy person. The letter that is the first, literally chronologically, the first item in the collection is one, it's a, a um, what we called a retained copy of a letter he sent to his agent in London in 1694. And the letter was to give instruction as to what things he wanted from England and to warn the agent to be very careful of the London merchants he worked with because John Custis felt that those, eight, those London merchants had a tradition of taking advantage of their clients' uh, customers in Virginia and would not send them the very best, the very top of the line of the materials they had in their holdings. So he wanted to uh, be sure that what came to Virginia, what was ordered for him, was really top of the line. But he also wrote extensively about his involvement in shipbuilding. He was going to build his own fleet of ships, and he gave great detail about how that was to take place. It's extraordinary detail for the time period and really an amazing start to this collection because of its content. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to spend time on lots of who begat whom's, so I want to fast forward to uh, another generation. Daniel Park Custis, the son of John Custis IV and Mary Park Custis. He was uh, a very wealthy planter and merchant following his father into government service, but he died young at the age of 46. And suddenly it fell upon his widow, Martha Dandridge from New Kent County, with apparently no advanced preparation to undertake the, man the management of his estate and the care of his plantations, which were extensive. And by all accounts, she did a very good job. She also became a very eligible widow and attracted the attention of a planter also on the rise from Fairfax County by the name of Colonel George Washington. The two of them married in 1759, and by Virginia law, then Washington took over the management of Daniel Park Custis' estates, as well as the management of the estates of the children of Daniel and Martha. Among them was John Park Custis, or Jackie, who became George Washington's stepson. This list that Mary Custis Lee had kept in her trunk was dates from 1766 and lists the slaves that were owned by John Park Custis in 1766 when he was at the age of 12. There were 266 persons on this list from New Kent, York County, and King William. This is an extraordinary piece of evidence about slave life and individuals, uh, a great help to African-American genealogy, and a great source to, for us to understand what the slaves were doing, because along with the names and the ages and the locations, there are also, in many cases, occupations, which is a great source of information for us. Now, the collection really begins in earnest with the papers of Jackie Custis's son, George Washington Park Custis. This was George... George Washington's step-grandson. He's uh, on the left, by the way. 
he was a challenging young man as a teenager, as most teenagers are, but he was one who later venerated the great man that he lived with for so many years. There's really lots to his story that we have to skip today, but as a builder of Arlington House, he really appears prominently in this collection, and there is just wonderful resource material about him and about the house. And I I do always stop at this point to say, please understand that that young man did not marry that older woman. I mean, he did, but not, well, you know what I mean. Um, These are just the images that we have of both of them. One of the letters from the collection that that gives us a lot of good insight into George Custis's building of Arlington House is one that he wrote to his wife, Mary Lee Fitzhugh, who was there on the right, uh, in 1810, September of 1810. And he says this to her, I've been very much plagued with continual rains, which has retarded my works in some measure, but I plowed through water and wind rather than lose a moment. The moonlit nights have served me much in certain jobs, such as making fence, etc. We work till nine o'clock. I have removed a world of earth and have now employed on the hill ten horses and near as many men. I think of employing Johnson for a month or two, though by the month only, to fix up matters in our new gardens, to attend to the removal of trees, shrubs, etc., to make you a set of asparagus beds in the kitchen garden. He is a first-rate gardener and a fellow of good taste in laying out our things, but a worthless vagabond otherwise. (laughs) Not a ringing endorsement. There is a lot of material that is is found in the trunks relating to the construction of Arlington House and the, the work on the grounds there that I think are a marvelous source and not yet really fully worked through by by scholars and researchers, so uh, a wonderful resource available. Uh, The wife of of George Washington Park Custis, Mary Lee Fitzhugh Custis, was was really an interesting person in her own right, and and there may be more of her papers than just about anybody else in this collection other than Mary Custis Lee herself. She was a very intelligent and uh, sprightly person. She was religiously active and committed anti-slavery advocate in the antebellum period. She was a, um, a strong advocate, and there's an early picture of Arlington House in the 1820s. She was an early advocate uh, and member of the American Colonization Society, which was involved in trying to free African-American slaves and have them uh, sent to colonize uh, in Liberia, in Africa. She, she supported that organization by word and deed and pocketbook. There is a lot of extraordinary women's history in this collection and African-American history as well. And a good portion of it uh, relates to Mary Lee Fitzhugh Custis. But when we get down to it, what catches everyone's immediate attention about this collection? Well, you have to admit that it's the papers of Robert E. Lee and Mrs. Lee. Mary Custis Lee both collected things about her father and saved things he had specifically written to her And here is one of the great treasures of this collection, letters from father to daughter. Here we see the personal side, no masks to hide feelings and separate the public persona from the loving father and the far from perfect individual. And these letters show, I think, that that is certainly the way in which he saw himself. But surely what's honestly most intriguing to people, from scholars to general students of history to the guy on the street, is the material from the Civil War. 
And again, it is the letters from Robert E. Lee to Mary Custis Lee that are extremely revealing. And I just wanted to share one or two of them, or snippets from one or two of them with you. The first is written on the 13th of May, 1861. So it's a little bit more than, well, it's about a month since secession. And this is what Robert E. Lee has to say to his daughter. Do not put faith in rumors of adjustment. I see no prospect for it. It cannot be while passions on both sides are so infuriated. Make your plans for a several, several years' war. If Virginia is invaded, which appears to be assigned, excuse me, appears to be designed, the main routes through the country will in all probability be invested, passage interrupted, and everyone annoyed. A little later on, after the Battle of Antietam, or Sharpsburg if you prefer, in September of 1862, he wrote to her again. We had two hard-fought battles in Maryland and did not consider ourselves beaten as our enemies supposed. We were greatly outnumbered and opposed by double, if not treble, our strength, and yet we repulsed their attacks, held our ground, and retired when it suited our convenience. Their loss is said to be very heavy, and their numbers report, uh, their newspapers report 13 of their generals killed and wounded at Sharpsburg. Among the former is my old engineer comrade, General Mansfield. Along with the letters written from the period of the Civil War, and there are quite a few to Mary, there are other documents uh, relating to this, to that time period. One of them that really fascinates me is, is this particular copy of an order uh, that was issued to the Army of Northern Virginia in, 18, in May of 1863, General Order Number 61. It is the general order to the Army announcing the death of Stonewall Jackson. And in it, there is this phrase that uh, Robert E. Lee uses. With deep grief, the commanding general announces to the Army the death of Lieutenant General T.J. T. J. Jackson, who expired on the 10th instant at quarter past 3 p.m. The daring skill and energy of this great and good soldier by the decree of an all-wise providence are now lost to us. Now, what is, I think, so interesting about this is that this order is written out in the hand of Robert E. Lee and signed by him. It is not written by a clerk. It is not written by an adjutant. It is written by the general himself. And interestingly, it differs from the public version in slight ways from the version that was printed and distributed to the army. Why would the general write out an order in his own hand? Was it the original order? Not sure that that's the case, but at some point, Robert E. Lee wrote out that order in his own hand. And I think, to me, it symbolizes the significance to him of what had occurred at that time. The collection is also interesting in that it includes a large number of letters that were collected by Mary Custis Lee and her mother, letters of condolence at the time that General Lee died. And these letters come literally from every corner of the United States, north and south, and they're amazing in their content. Some include reminiscences, some are clearly expressions of public opinion about General Lee, but they provide a wealth of detail about the public image of this gentleman. And it's an amazing group of things and obviously meant a great deal to Mary Custis Lee because she kept hundreds 
of these letters. After her father's death, there are several things that predominate among the materials in the trunks. Mary Custis Lee's involvement with Confederate veterans. She was special guest at events and unveilings and reunions, including those that had both Confederate and Union former warriors. And if she was not a voice for re reconciliation, she was at least a, a presence at such events uh, and later in her life, which spoke to her commitment to that. And then there is the recovering of property from Arlington or elsewhere that was lost during the Civil War. Most of you may know the story, and, and some of you may have heard the uh, banner lecture we had several weeks ago about the history of Arlington Cemetery. Secession occurs, Robert E. Lee goes to Richmond, the family flees, federal troops occupy the house and grounds, and the place is virtually stripped of personal contents. But very soon after the war, remarkably soon after the war, Mrs. Lee petitioned President Andrew Johnson in 1866, an attempt to recover anything she could, basing her appeal on the descent, her descent from the Custises and her connection to George Washington and not on who her husband was. The president was in turn remarkably receptive, ordering the army to assist her and her agent, Mary Custis Lee. Mary Custis Lee went to Washington and tried to find out what had been taken from the house that could possibly be recovered and how could it come back to the family? And again, she, she found a remarkably receptive group of people. Among them, a Major J.H. Taylor, who wrote to her in September of 1866 from the War Department. And think about this as I read this little piece, that this is not 18 months after the end of the war, writing, a, a Union officer in the Department of War writing to the, the daughter of Robert E. Lee. And this is what he says. The Secretary of War directs that all unconfiscated furniture in the house be delivered to Mrs. Lee or her agent. I have sent for a list of the property. As soon as it arrives, Mr. Fendel will be authorized to take possession of all the articles. He will also go to Arlington in person and rectify any in inaccuracies which may occur. Do not think, Miss Mary, that I have been dilatory in this affair. On the contrary, I have been much interested and have done that which lay in my power. But in Washington, it often takes many days to accomplish a very little. <laughs> well, the Congress was not as receptive to Mrs. Lee as was the president. And so the story went on for a long time. Um, and ultimately, there was some success in having materials and having possessions returned to them. There's a very interesting report in this a collection to Mrs. Lee about what had occurred at Arlington during the war. And it was written by Selena Gray, who was a former slave on the Arlington property. Selena wrote to Mrs. Lee in uh, 1872, and she said this to her. Mrs. Lee, I received your letter and was happy to hear from you, and I was hoping to see you once more at Arlington. It is a most lovely place now. Everywhere around it looks beautiful. There is not a tree to be seen except in the cemetery. The whole of it is rented to the freemen. They have little huts all over the beautiful place, and besides that, they have a large military school, a signal corps, and the place is changed so you would hardly know it. Your things at the time of the war was taken away by everybody, too. The officers would have them in their tents and all over the ground, and when they moved away, they would give them to the persons that waited on them. The quartermasters and officers would just take what they wanted every time they moved away. 
I underwent a great deal to stay at Arlington as long as I did, having so many inferior persons to contend with. <laughs> this is, a, I think, an interesting image of Arlington that is in the trunks, or was in the trunks. This is the rear view of Arlington, not often seen. Finally, the trunks contain a wealth of information on Mary's world travels, what she saw, who she met, what she meant to the people she encountered. She traveled all over the world, literally. She traveled from England and France uh, all the way to Egypt, the Sudan, India, China, Japan. She was a remarkable traveler, and she went to all kinds of interesting places. These invitations were for her to sort of hang with Queen Victoria <laughs> at Buckingham Palace. As the last of the Lee children entered their later years, and here we see Custis and Rooney and Mildred, Mary collected more and more things from them, especially about her parents. It was her brother Rob, Robert E. Lee Jr., who was the last of the siblings to die in 1922, four years after Mary. This short history barely scratches the surface of what the trunks contain, and it hardly does justice to what Mary Custis Lee collected and saved and cherished. But we can only, and we can only give a few examples today, but I'd like to end with one such example that to me is a powerful testament to the significance of hidden treasures. By no stretch of the imagination would I classify myself as a Civil War historian. But over the years, I've had to learn a lot about the war to do my job. And in that process, I felt like I'd gotten to know a lot about quite a few of the major players, not the least among them, James Ewell Brown Stewart, the bold dragoon, the last cavalier. I thought so, that is, until I read a letter from him to Mary Custis Lee in September 1863, just a, really a few months before his death, a letter carefully preserved in her trunks. Jeb Stewart had met the Lees at West Point while he was a cadet, and Robert E. Lee was the superintendent. And he always remained close to the family, and especially close to Mary Custis Lee. Thus, he could bear his soul to her in this letter. Flora, his wife, is near Lynchburg, and is, I regret to say, something of an invalid. She would be so glad to see you all. My little angel, referring to his daughter, Flora, left me nearly a year ago. I was in battle at the moment of her death. I think of her as absent only. I cannot realize her death. When I last saw her at Dundee in Hanover County a year ago last August, after I mounted my horse to ride away, when farewells were said and tears had been shed, she ran out after me, climbed up my stirrup, clung around my neck with her sweet little arms, with tearful kisses till forced away. Ah, oh, Mary, can I ever forget that picture, that parting, that embrace? Can you wonder at the tears that fill my eyes as I write? The thought flashed through my mind at that moment. It is now vividly remembered. Shall I see my pet again? And the, glory, and the gloomy apprehension rose and kindled tears in my eyes. I was just starting on the campaign against Pope and knew that my life hung by a thread, ready to be severed by any one of the thousand missiles of death which sweep the battle plain. All this flashed through my mind, for there are moments which are like a century. I thought of the widow and the fatherless little sylph in my arms, and I breathed a prayer that he who tempered the winds to the shorn lamb would deal tenderly with mine. Oh, little did I think I was to be spared, and she 
she taken. I feel it is all gain to her, but my grief admonishes me that earth has lost its main attraction. And while it does not make me reckless, I go forth at the summons of duty and of danger with that cheerful resignation which the cold world miscalls rashness. I must apologize, dear Mary, for intruding my grief in your presence. You touched a tender chord when you alluded to little Flora, and the heartstrings would vibrate. I dare not write to Flora as I have written to you. I have to restrain my grief, my feelings, my language on that subject, and she little dreams what agony in lone bivouac or even on the march these choking memories have caused me. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the stuff of history. That is why we collect. That is why we preserve. That is why we promote access. Snippets like that bring the people and the places and the events of our past to life. And imagine that hundreds of thousands of times over in the collections of the Virginia Historical Society. Thank you for letting me share these few things with you today. Thank you for coming, and thank you for staying. <laughs> I have yet another opportunity, which is to take questions from you. Be gentle. <laughs> I was wondering if in the trunks you found any uh, uh, proof that uh, Robert E. Lee himself owned slaves. And secondly, where was George Washington married? <laughs> <laughs> No, and I have no idea. <laughs> uh, interestingly, there is really not a lot on aspects of the Lee family beyond the personal relationships among the family members. There's not a, not a lot of documentation in this particular collection. Now, there's plenty here in the society's holdings from other collections we've received over the years about the Lee family. But there's uh, really nothing there to answer that first question of yours. Uh, and as Surprisingly, really not anything in there about um, the manumission of the Custis slaves after George Washington Park Custis died, and uh, Robert E. Lee was responsible for uh, affecting that over time. Uh, there's, there's nothing there at all about that. And uh, I'm glad you asked the question about, uh, about the marriage because, no, I don't have an answer to that. It's not in the, not in the trunks. But uh, it's, it's also very interesting to me that, that it's been known for a long, long time that there's really not much documentary evidence about Martha Washington at all that survives. Uh, and unfortunately, we thought maybe, oh, we kept digging down and thinking maybe there'll be more and more. The few items that I showed you that are in actually kind of poor condition uh, are just, again, another couple of pieces of evidence. And because of the rarity of that evidence, every little piece of paper about her is significant. So they do tell us a, a little bit more about her management of her husband's estates. But that's about it. So I'm sorry I can't shed more light on that. St. Peter's Church, New Kent, <laughs> would be the answer. That um, last letter, of course, was so touching from Stuart. Um, isn't it true that Flora actually voiced her concern about her feeling that 
he did not express great feeling at the loss of their daughter? Wasn't that something that she was actually very hurt about? I mean, it seems like to me that I've read that and various things that she was very hurt, you know, that, of course, he was missing at the time little Flora died, and, and she just felt like that it didn't bother him from what I've read unless somebody else knows different. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I can't necessarily point to anything that that would that would verify that or you know not verify it necessarily but but certainly I think there was in my understanding of the relationship between them that that you know oftentimes happens in marriages is that the communication is not that good in times of of distress and uh, that may very well have been it's the separation the physical separation of them and uh you can you at least get the side here that he's withholding his feelings. You, you understand maybe what is motivating him. That doesn't help in what she's feeling. But I found it to be really revealing of of him as a person and of that that side of the relationship. So I'm I'm not sure you know how that how that really relates to their their personal relationship. But it was a good I thought a great insight as to his feelings about that. And being a father myself, oh, well, when you read that, it's, it's tough. Did you find out how Mary uh, funded her travels? Great question. Very good question. And, and uh, I'm asked that a lot. And as it turns out, uh, Robert E. Lee was a very good investor of money for his children. He invested in railroad bonds, in northern railroad bonds. <laughs> Uh, so there was, and you know what happened with railroads after the Civil War, and so there was a very steady flow of income to the children. And uh, Mary Custis Lee had a nephew who was an attorney and was a financial manager for her that I think also did very well in investing that, turning around and reinvesting that money. And so she had a, a really nice steady stream of income. But she also was uh, very adept at finding family and friends wherever she went. And there was a lot of expatriation after the war, of course, and people went all different places. And it wasn't that she took advantage of that relationship, but she often had invitations. And in those days, as you know, those invitations were not for a day or two. They were for months at a time. So she was able to um, really take advantage of that kind of opportunity to uh, increase her ability to be able to travel. So, well, but a good question. She, she did have a good study income. Um, hi. Uh, about, I was very privileged to take a geography course from Dr. Hawthorne at VCU about, I guess, 30 years ago. And we would get in her van, and she would drive us from place to place, uh, she just said educated people ought to know this. And one of the places she took us was in New Kent County, was to St. Peter's Church. And I am sure she said, I don't know if it was definite, that this is a church where George Washington was married. And that's how I remember the church. And then I also remember the beautiful brickwork, too. And I just, that is true, is it not? Well, there is a, a debate, and I will not 
by any means say that I'm an expert on this debate, but there's always been some question about did it take place in the Dandridge home or did it take place in the church? Uh-huh. My you know, personal feeling, given the, the history of the time period, was the church is where I would expect that it is, to That have, it is correct. That, well, that is where I would have expected it to yes. take place. I'm not saying. Okay. <laughs> I'm not coming down Well, on that if <laughs> any of you have never visited St. Peter's Church, it's not far from Richmond. I urge you to go. It is just it is beautiful. Yeah. so lovely. You'll be glad you did. Uh, Lee, that was just a wonderful, fascinating presentation. Thank you very much. Could you just tell us briefly when and how some of this material will be available to researchers or people coming here? Because you've got so much to go through. And is there any chance that material like this will ever be accessible, for example, over the Internet? Yes. Well, thank you for asking that, Rob. Uh, I'm very happy to say that 95% of this collection is already available, and you could go from here to the library and look at it. Uh, the family has asked that a small portion be kept back for, for, for the, just for a short period of time. Two members of the family, Rob DeButts being one of them, and then his cousin, Susan uh, Zimmer-Vogel, are working on aspects of the family history, and they've asked us to, in one case, hold back some material briefly, uh, Mary Custis Lee's travel journals and correspondence from the 1870s. Susan, Susan is working on that for an edited edition. And then Rob DeButts is working on a uh, collection of Robert E. Lee family correspondence. And he has asked us not to close that correspondence, but, but not to um, allow copying of, the, of that course, photocopying or digital copying of that correspondence for just a few years. And uh, so that you know, those we expect to be lifted fairly soon, and then 100% of the collection will be open. But, but fully, I would say 95% of the collection is available for research now. So, and we do have hopes to digitize uh, good representative pieces out of this in the future. Absolutely. Hi. Hi. Are there any papers on the Lees family's time at Derwent, including uh, the, the invitation from Mrs. Randolph-Cock? Uh, no, there there are not specifically to that, but there's an awful lot of correspondence with um, Charles Carley, um, and uh, really, I thought wonderful insights. I have uh, my colleague Paige Newman, who worked on this collection with me, did a lot of the work on the post Civil War material in the collection. We sort of divided the collection up to work on it, and she showed me some of the things that were in there. But there's a, really a great amount of of um, material in there, family correspondence. Um, and we haven't, I haven't read it deeply enough to know if it, if it yields too much more in a way of clues about that particular incident, but uh, that's a worthy topic for someone to do some research. But again, there's abundant, abundance of material there that could be used. So. Um, I'm curious about, you know, this is, I'm sure, representative of all sorts of other similar types of things that you, know, that you have and you're involved with. Where do you keep all this stuff? Is there some big garage somewhere, or are you, are you? upstairs? <laughs> uh, we have we have uh, we're we're very fortunate, as, as you probably know, to have been able to um, build three wings in 20 years, and we have um, very good storage space upstairs. It takes a lot of room, as you can imagine, to um, collect and store these kinds of materials. But we're very committed to that because we feel it's important that people be able to be in touch with the real thing. Uh, and while we're 
attempting to get as much of that available on, on the internet as well through digital imaging, we also feel that, that holding on to the originals are important. So there is a strong commitment on the behalf of our Board of Trustees to, to make that kind of space available. But it also puts a responsibility on me and my colleagues that we're careful about what we do collect. And we're offered so many things, uh, many of which are wonderful, some of which are not. Um, and so, so we really try to set some guidelines to people as collections are offered to us to say, yes, we're really interested in this. No, we're not interested in that. For example, if you came to me with your papers, I really wouldn't want 40 years of Virginia power bills. I just, I don't need that. No, no, that's not it. But if you were bringing me, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, these are letters that I wrote when I was in college or I was serving in, in the Korean War or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, there are certain judgments we can make about the kinds of things that, that we feel are important for long-term preservation and, and availability to scholarship. So I hope that answers. Yeah. I, I have two questions. The first is, <clears throat> since uh, most of these papers are long before acid-free papers were developed, how do you preserve them from deterioration in the long term. And the second question is, uh, is there a possibility of a book about this collection from the uh, Historical Society being prepared and developed? Well, the first question is a great question. And we do, we're very fortunate here to have a conservation laboratory and conservation officer. And that person works with that paper. And it, it is amazing to see what she can what she can do. But the, the simple answer to your question is that the work with, with uh, threatened paper materials involves uh, deacidification, which is essentially a, a bath in deionized water to remove the acidity from the paper. And then they do a lot of things for stabilization. Um, it's a long, involved process, which I won't bore you with. But, but there are remarkable things that can be done with the paper to restore it and and then we will uh, have a tendency with those threatened things to put them into protective sleeves, mylar sleeves, plastic, inert plastic sleeves, or, and all of them go into um, acid-free housing boxes, folders. Uh, so we do everything that we can to protect the documents. Um, one of the interesting things all through my career has been the fact that the paper content before the Civil War is rag-based paper content after the Civil War well, into the 1870s becomes pulp-based, and that stuff is much, much harder to deal with than the earlier, unless you introduce things like water damage and, and that kind of thing, then bets are off. But uh, there are lots of different things that can be, can be done to preserve these collections, and we try to do as much as we can within the building to, do, to preserve them. Um, I don't know of any book that's going to come out of this, so... <clears throat> The email is the email is p good at ea historical society. Thank you, Lee. Thank you very much. <laughs>